Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner, Ben Acker, for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, uh, and follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Let's talk to Joe Hill. Thank you for being here. I'm so sorry to swan in 15 minutes late, you know, that you, I lived in Boston for years and for, you'd think by now I'd know that, you know, you can't assume it's going to be quick connections on the subway. No, certainly not. So, um, so I got hung up, but thanks for waking around for me. <laughs> we, we could have talked all night. This is fine. <laughs> oh, is it I want to know, uh, what about Daredevil? What about the guy who writes Daredevil? Let me tell you, please sit down. That's please. true. Is that, is that Drew Goddard? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a complicated story, Joe. Uh, Drew Goddard wrote the pilot and developed it for Netflix. Yeah. And then um, he went off to do a Spider-Man movie, which may or may not happen. And uh, Steve Denight took over season one. And then Steve Denight, and we actually, we talked about this and in the podcast. And Steve Denight has also done... He did Spartacus, and he is a, another uh, sort of Whedon Universe right. alum. And then Steve has left for season two, and uh, Doug Petrie and another guy are taking over. Uh, and they are awesome. It's going to be really good. Well, I just think it's... it's it's such a change of pace for, for Marvel. It's so different from the character and tone of the Marvel movies. It's so much darker and, you know, and um, has a lot of really – the you, you feel the action in your bones. You know, Absolutely. It has this kind of bone-crunching <laughs> feel to it. It has that great fight in the hallway that went on for like about – an hour and 10 minutes, you know, I mean, he just fought his way up and down the hallway and back and forth and into rooms and came back out. It was almost, it's, it confirms my belief that great action always brings you right up to the Warner brothers line, right up to the, right up to the roadrunner coyote line where it's like, that's why Mad Max was so great. You know, I mean, I've never, it's never crossed my mind that if you wanted to board someone else's car while you're doing 60 miles an hour, probably the easiest and best way would be to, climb to the top of a giant stick waving back and forth and just wait for the bend to carry you over onto the roof it seems obvious now yeah when you think about it you're like oh well that just makes so much sense exactly um you know and so but anything when you can take live action and bring it right up to the edge of feeling like a roadrunner cartoon you've done something special Let, let me ask you something uh how does this translate to prose well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what. Um, uh, I did a comic book, a short story. I, years ago, I did a short story uh, called "The Cape," 
which is about a guy who sort of burned out um, when he was a kid. He had his child's cape, and and there seemed to be an incident where he was able to actually fly in it. And he rediscovers his cape as a burned out. Um, unhappy man in his early 30s and it it it, le- it leads to the uh you know sort of opening of his heart it's very heartwarming story <laughs> and um but so it was done into a comic book and uh and me and a, a comic book writer named jason Cheramella worked on it together and in the third issue um, some cops go looking for this guy because his girlfriend, for some reason, fell from 80 feet up in the air when there was nothing to drop off of. Um, and, um, you know, and the cops are suspicious. They don't like the way the guy, the guy smells. They just, everything he says feels wrong. And so they're driving away in a convertible and they're talking about it. And he throws on his cape and he goes after him and he makes a stop at the zoo and he finds a bear cub and he lifts it up into the air on a giant chain and he flies over them and he drops the bear in their car. <laughs> and then, you know, and then he lands like a block away and he's talking to his brother on the phone and behind him, the car is like going, <laughs> You know, and and um, and since then, you know, um, me and, and my pal Jason, we've talked about stories that drop the bear. You know, <laughs> that there's there's you always want to take readers to a moment, mm-hmm. you know, where it seems like, you know, you're saying this isn't really going to happen, is it? And then the bear falls and and you feel like, oh, my God, this was I always wanted this to happen in a story. I just didn't know it until today. <laughs> You know, and I think in great, I think in great storytelling and good storytelling, whether it's a great TV show or, or, you know, a great comic book or a great novel or whatever, you know, you look for those moments, mm-hmm. those moments when a trap door sort of opens in the story and you plunge into something completely yeah. thrilling and completely unexpected and completely, you know, and that, that pumps you up. And I think when you find a movie or a book or a comic that disappoints you, it tends to disappoint you because it did everything you expected it to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, I think that's absolutely true as consumers of this stuff. But is it something that's part of your process? Is that, you know, do you come to a moment and think, how do I drop the bear? A little, a little. I mean, I, usually when I'm working on a story and I start, I have a couple, uh, I have a couple of those bear dropping moments in mind mm-hmm. and I'm trying to write towards them. Um, you know, I also, you know, speaking of, of The Walking Dead, and, you know, there are all these – there's this enormous body of work now about the zombie apocalypse, you know, the films, the comics, the TV shows. Um, and some critics said at this point the most the, – the, the hardest thing to accept when you see one of these movies, the great leap of faith that you have to take is the idea that no one has any idea what's happening. You know, haven't they watched all the same movies we've watched? Haven't they seen all the same shows? Um, you know, and I'm always fighting this in my stories, you know, when you have, when you have a ghost turn up in a house, people have read ghost stories. They have ideas about how you're supposed to respond. Like for starters, by leaving the house, <laughs> you don't stay in the house. You then know? you don't have much of a story. Right. And so you have to, you have to, I just, you know, I always feel like you owe it to the readers to make the characters in the story at least as smart as them. Um, and, and, um, and a lot of times if you can just have the reader do take the action that feels like the story destroying action, you know, the inspired unexpected choice that just totally rips the carpet out from under the story. Sometimes that opens up a new area and the narrative goes in an unexpected direction. 
reaction where you're like, oh, this is this is going to be fun. This isn't what I thought. Can you think of an instance wh- in which you've done that? I can. I was so in my first novel, Heart Shaped Box. It's about heard uh, of it. it. It's about a heavy metal musician who buys a ghost online. And it turns out this ghost turns out to be very bad and to have it in for him. And um, the way he took possession of the ghost was he received a, the dead man's suit in a heart-shaped box, hence the title. Um, and, and I was thinking about it, and I thought, why doesn't he just burn the suit? And so that's what I did is I, I, had him, I had him go out. and No, actually, he doesn't burn the suit. His girlfriend burns the suit. He realizes the ghost is attached to the suit. And he's, he's a heavy, heavy metal musician. He's got a lot of fans. And he thinks, I'm going to give it to one of my fans. <laughs> then the ghost will eat them instead of me. And he, he, doesn't, he doesn't care. That's, that's okay. I mean, he's got a lot of fans. He can burn one. <laughs> um, and so he has this inspiration. He's like, this is how I'm going to get rid of it. And then, you know, he's thinking about this in bed, and he goes downstairs, and his girlfriend is burning the suit on the grill. And she says, I burned the damn thing. We don't have to worry about it anymore. But, of course, this is exactly the wrong thing to do. Right. Um, and so, and so that, was, that was unexpected. And the other, I also had this realization when I was working on that story that the ghost wasn't haunting his house. The ghost was haunting him. Mm-hmm. Wherever he went, the ghost was going to come along for the ride. And that was also kind of fun because it, it meant the story didn't, I didn't have to spend the story anchored in his farmhouse. I could get out on the road and move. Yeah. You you bring up uh, an interesting aspect of that character uh, as well as some other characters that you've written. I'm thinking of uh, Horns as well, where you have a protagonist who's kind of horrible. Yeah, can you can you speak? Yeah, about that there's a, a bit? thing in um, so there's a thing in Heart Shaped Box when we meet Jude. You know, he's fifty something. He's on the downslope of his career, but he's made. You know, he's had the videos on MTV. He's had the platinum albums. He's played arenas. Um, but he's a very angry man. You know, very. Um, very angry, very unhappy. And um, at one point, he's having a fight early on. He's having a fight with his girlfriend. And uh, uh, she says, you're a, you're a sensitive son of a bitch. You know that? And he goes, you want empathy? Go fuck James Taylor. Um, you know, and, and but the thing is, is I, I've always liked stories. I mean, if you look at stories going back to Dickens, a lot of times stories are about transformation. It's about taking a character who is one thing and and in the crucible of you know in under intense pressure um they they open up they become something new they reinvent themselves they discover strengths they didn't know they had resources they didn't know they had um when we meet jude you know i think most readers feel he's so unpleasant he's so hateful he's mean to everyone who loves him he's so angry Actually, Jude isn't as bad a person as he first appears, and he's not as bad a person as he himself believes he is. Um, there is a real reservoir of decency and heroism mm-hmm. inside him, and it just takes it takes this threat to his own life and soul to bring that out in him and show what he's capable of. And I and I like that. I always want. I mean, I always feel like um, you know you hear people in publishing and people in film talk about you know um make a character that people can empathize empathize with care about connect Mm -hmm. um identify with identification is big um but i always think if you start with a guy who's already decent heroic kind self-sacrificing i mean why are we even reading the story Mm -hmm. he's already become that aspirational figure you know um isn't it more interesting to start with someone who's damaged who has regrets and then see them try to fight back to reclaim their own soul 
Yes, the answer is yes. But, <laughs> you know, in in television, we are always given the note to make your protagonist more likable. Mm. Never mind identifiable, but more likable. So we want to stay with him on this right. journey. So is this, is this something you need to contend with? Thank God Vince Gilligan didn't listen to them. Well, yeah, but, no but Walter White was very likable in the beginning. He, yeah, he is. He is mm-hmm. actually. I think he's still pretty likable at the end. That's true. You know, he's he's you know he's he's killed people. He's a horrific meth dealer. Um, he's destroying lives. But he is Moriarty. You know, he has that charisma it's of Moriarty. Charisma, you know, of of someone who's always four steps ahead of everyone else. Mm-hmm. Who can always, you know. Um, puzzle his way out of a seemingly impossible situation and, and we can't help but admire that even if the things he's doing are so destructive. But can we can we use that season seven Walter White as a beginning? Yeah, could that be the beginning of the character? That's what I wonder. Well, I mean if you believe, if you accept that stories are about seeing characters change, and they don't always have to be, um, and in fact a lot of good TV like Cheers is about the idea that people never change, sure. that they're always pretty much exactly the same and that that's comforting. Um, Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes never changes. Mm-hmm. He's exactly the same person in story after story after story. That's why we love those stories. We'd hate it if he changes. Um but if you do accept that, you know, that novels, that stories are about change, if you started with season seven, Walter White, you'd have to find a way for him. You'd have to go in the other direction. Right. I think so. You know, that you'd have to find this character say, look at all these lives I've destroyed. Now I want to fix things, mm-hmm. um, you know, and seeing and that could be a great tragic arc, you know, oh, seeing absolutely. the futility of that. <laughs> That's I think we just got your worldview uh, summed up. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's interesting to me is the the stories that your characters go through um, are not sort of straightforward Dickensian uh, stories of change. Yeah. They're not uh, traditional in that they have this slathering of genre on top of them. Yeah, you, know, you, you I think you very smartly use that metaphor as a an engine for both story and for your characters to change. Yeah. Well, I you know, I don't know. I mean, I've all my almost all my fiction has been, you know, very genre based. Um, you know, there's a story about a man running from a ghost, there's a story about a man turning into a devil. Um, there's a story about a haunted house full of enchanted impossible keys. You know, there's obviously genre elements throughout my stuff. Um, I don't know that I'm all that hung up on genre actually. Mm-hmm. What I'm really hung up on because I'm insecure is suspense. Um, you know, I think, I think that, you know, that you you take a character that people care about and you feed them to, you know, the wood chipper and, and that, you know, wondering if they're going to survive, if they can make it is what keeps people turning pages, you know, seeing the feeling that at any moment, these people might be destroyed, um, is, you know, and I'm just so insecure. I don't know what a book, what a book would feel like if it wasn't that. You know, if it wasn't that relentless pressure to survive, to escape, yeah. to make it to the next minute and the minute after that. Once people push to extremes. Yeah, right? yeah. And I trust that. I have faith in that. And I know that there are wonderful stories that aren't like that. I just don't know if I can write them um, because I just be I just be, you know, I, I just be so afraid. I just think, well, why won't they get bored and put on YouTube? You know, <laughs> why won't they look? Do, you, do, do any of you guys fo- follow John Scalzi online? 
uh, like on Twitter and stuff. Dude, dude posts a new kitten picture like every hour. <laughs> what will keep them from John Scalzi's kitten pictures? <laughs> you know, that's my rescuing from rescue, rescuing you from John Scalzi's <laughs> Twitter feed. You know, for a few minutes, that's what I aim to do. Uh, well, I want to come back to uh, this idea of writing other things. But for a second, I want to kind of deep dive on process for a moment yeah, okay. and talk about that building of suspense mm. uh, in prose. Because, again, in a visual medium, it makes sense to me. It seems very easy to me. You know, there are there are visual tropes that we right. know. How do you do that? Someone's in, in the prose? basement. Someone they've got they've gone down in the basement to find the dripping pipe. And there's one bare light bulb, and the bare light bulb is flickering. And they they go to screw it in, and and in the background you see a blurred figure walk between two beams. You know, <laughs> and at that moment the woman adjusting the light it goes Fritz, and the light bulb goes out. She goes, oh damn it, and you're in the dark. That's the that's the visual Absolutely. where you're just like, oh, God, I just saw he's down there in the basement with Absolutely. her, you know, and and um, yeah. But there's a, a finesse that has to happen when translating that. I mean, in translating anything to prose, but specifically suspense, you know, again, it's where does your mind go when you're writing these passages? Um, in. In first draft, I don't worry about it too much. Um, I'm working longhand, and I'm 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 trying to find my way to the voice of the character. How do the characters talk to each other? What do they care about? And I'll write a lot of material. I'll churn out a lot of material in first draft that I'm never going to use. Um, I remember. What form? I'm going to interrupt you a lot. I apologize, That's but fine. I want to kind of That's dig fine. in on some of the stuff. Uh, what form does that take? Is it is it you know, stream of consciousness? Are you writing scenes? What does it look like, even okay. written longhand? So in the new novel, so in the new novel, at Coming one out point, next year. At one, right, there's a book coming out um, next year called The Fireman. And in the new novel, at one point in first draft, there was a character who had a bow and arrow. And for had was going to try to shoot an arrow a very long distance. And, and, and there were obstacles. And I wrote this scene about this person trying to get up in a church tower to shoot an arrow all the month of August. And I learned so much about the character in the course of writing the scene. And there was some great struggles to get past sentries to, you know, all, all this stuff happening, you know, the, all this pressure. And I got done and I thought about it. It was this huge. It almost filled a whole notebook, this one little notebook. And I got done. I thought about it. I thought... You know, if she wants to send a message, it's pretty silly to send it by arrow. She could actually just use this one character to carry a message. Yeah. So I just, the whole month of August just disappeared because it was so silly, you know, and I just cut the thing out. But it was useful. It was, a, it was not wasted effort because in, in the course of writing this endless, ridiculous scene that never got used, um, I learned a lot about the way the character thought mm -hmm. and the way, way some other characters talked to this person. And I heard their voices. And, and that's just, you know... Um, my idea is you come up with a situation that feels like it might have some suspense in it. And then you assemble your characters and you try to learn how they think about the world, how they talk to people, what they love, what they're interested in, what they're afraid of. You try to capture those characters. And then at a certain point, you don't have to think anymore because you, all, the, you can just let the characters mm -hmm. solve the problems or address the problems the way they naturally would. Um, 
so I did this comic lock and key, and I did I did lock and key for six years, and in the early going in lock and key, um, there was a, a family, and the the protagonists are these three kids: uh, Tyler Lock, Kinsey Lock, and Bodie Lock. And they're in this house full of enchanted keys, and there's one key that has to be protected, the Omega key, because there's this demonic figure named Dodge that wants to get that key and open the black door. And you can just tell from the name that door needs to stay shut. Um, When I began the comic, I remember writing issue two, and I did 12 drafts of issue two. And I was very – I was tense. How do you have this time? It was – well, it's my job. It's it's like this is what I do all day. So, you know, so I I, I just kept doing draft after draft, and it was – and I started to panic. I mean I could – feel like you know i wrote this one dinner scene that didn't work and i wrote it again and again and again and it never worked um you know and and what i was struggling with was finding the voice of those characters figuring out who these people were and i had to admit that the problem i was running into was i actually only knew who two of the characters were and i didn't know who the i didn't know who the rest of these people were i knew who Bodie Locke was and I knew who Tyler Locke was and all the other scenes I was struggling with because I didn't know who they were yet or how they talked to each other or what they cared about. So 12 drafts for issue two. By the time I got to the last 12 issues, I was sometimes able to write the whole thing in two drafts and it was effortless and it was joyous. I had such a blast writing those issues because by then I had learned about all the characters. And so whenever I put them into a situation, I always knew how all of them would behave. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I could just step back and let let the situations um, play themselves out naturally because Tyler would try to solve problems one way. Bodie would try to solve problems another. Dodge would would do this nina Locke would do that and it was always just right there because i had learned so much about them mm-hmm. i think something that a lot of beginning writers struggle with is creating these characters who do have different points of view either right. to the writer or from their protagonist was this something that you ever had to contend with and and i mean early on did you have trouble with it and i always have to how did you i've never stopped contending with it um, so so your method is just to write and write and write and try to figure that out yeah and when i when i work with people who want to be writers when i work with writing students when i when i you know um when i talk about process what i usually say is when you sit down to write forget writing a novel i think that's a really a huge waste of time stupid thing to even think don't sit down to write a novel don't sit down to write a short story don't sit down to write a comic book sit down to write one good scene that's it that's the whole day's job is just write one scene that people will want to read to the end um a novel is a stack of good scenes that connect a short story is one to three good scenes that connect um, you know, a comic book is usually two or maybe three good scenes that connect. That's a 22-page comic book. You know, if you can just write a good scene, you've done your day's work. It may be – but what what does happen, at least with me in the novels, is a lot of times I write, you know, ten good scenes and only wind up using four of them mm-hmm. because because sense. the other six weren't quite good enough. Sure. Uh, let me before we get too far away from it. Um, this notebook that you filled with this arrow scene, yeah. Um, and I ask this for no reason whatsoever. Do you you discover stuff about the character yeah. in that? Uh, does that is that stuff? Are you able to let go of that stuff if you find you need to let go of that stuff, or is that cemented as part of that character? I just think. Um, um, 
I think fear is so useful. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, what I keep thinking about people getting bored and putting on Judge Judy. You know, I just have this tear. There's just, it's, it's never been worse. There's so much entertainment out there. There are so many fun things you could be doing besides reading my book, you know, and it just puts this relentless pressure on it. I just don't think you can afford to keep a scene you don't have confidence in, you know, because there's just, you're, you're fighting every paragraph. You're fighting for the reader's attention. You're fighting to keep the reader there instead of here, mm-hmm. you you know, I mean, we've we're all. Yeah, any of you read um, Harrison Bergeron by Vonnegut? Sure. You know, it's it's this is this story about a society that's equal and everyone is made equal by like you know if you're smart your IQ is reduced artificially and you know if you're fast you're slowed down by wearing lead boots and and um, really smart people have these buzzers inserted in their ears that go off randomly goes every fifteen seconds. So as soon as you start to think something beautiful or inspiring, and you forget what you were thinking and now we're all carrying that device in our pockets you know um and so and so i i'm always thinking at this point like when the phone goes off what's going to bring them back to the book Mm -hmm. something they, they better feel like a life is at stake and and it doesn't have to be a physical life at stake actually sometimes that can be weak um just having a life at stake might be it, the life of a loved one is even more tense um, or the feeling of losing everything you've worked for in your life. Um, the Michael Crichton book um, Disclosure had had created suspense by threatening this man's career. But when you realize that his career was everything to him, the stakes felt like life or death instead of, you know, this incredibly rich white collar guy, you know, <laughs> losing his seven-figure salary, you know, which when you think about it is kind of like, you know, (laughs) here's the world's smallest violin. Uh, Let me ask you, so for how long... Do you guys know the world's smallest violin actually plays a song? It's... I I didn't... I mean, like, because a lot of people just stop at that. It's actually my heart... My heart pumps purple piss for for thee. (laughs) You never heard that? No. This is the world's smallest violin. Nobody's ever heard that. This is the world's smallest violin playing my heart pumps purple piss for thee. Where does that come from? I don't know. I used to hear it in... This... I used to hear it when I was a kid. (laughs) I don't. I don't know the melody. Actually, <laughs> how, for how long have you been a professional writer? Um, Paid as a writer. There, this is going somewhere. <laughs> well, uh, the history gets complicated there. <laughs> as Joe Hill, uh, my first paid story that I'll admit to was a short story called Better Than Home, which won the A.E. Coppered Long Fiction Prize, and it was like I got paid $500 mm-hmm. for it, and I think that was 1998. Okay. This is a story about baseball, and it's actually a mainstream story. It's a, um, It was in 20th Century Ghosts, and it's a story about a guy who's the manager of a losing baseball team. Um, loosely modeled in the Red Sox and and his very and his very challenged son, his emotionally challenged son. Is it you know and um um but but I had another career as as Joseph King um and I wrote screenplays and I think that I sold my first screenplay that I wrote with my brother in nineteen ninety four or nineteen ninety three or something. No, probably nineteen ninety five. Um so um just to get out of the way, uh both my parents write um, my dad's written a few books. Um, and, um, when I was, when I was in college, I, I, uh, 
I, I had knew I wanted to be a writer. I knew I wanted to publish. Um, and, and I, I knew I couldn't do it as Joseph King. Um, because I had this terror, this, this fear, you see, fe- it always comes back to fear. It always comes back to what's scaring me. You know, I have a lot of anxiety. I can't imagine why the, um, I had this fear that I would write something mediocre and a publisher would publish it anyway, because they saw a chance to make a fast buck in the last name. You know, someone would say, son of Stephen King, let's publish Joseph King's book. And the problem is, is that, that then reader, I was afraid that readers would read my book and see how mediocre it was and say he only got published because he was riding on his dad's coattails. And then they wouldn't read my second book. And, um, you know, I, for my self-confidence, I needed to feel like when I got published, I got published for the right reasons because I wrote something someone really loved. So um, not long after I got out of college, I made two decisions. Um, the first was to drop my last name and just write under my middle name and just be Joe Hill. And the other thing was never, ever, ever to write scary stories. One, of those, one of those two decisions stuck. Um, the reason I wound up writing scary stories is be- I wrote for several years, I wrote what I thought of as New Yorker stories. At the time, I didn't actually read The New Yorker. So I didn't. I was just kind of guessing that these Wait were like... Let's talk about that. This was actually where I was going with this. Uh, yeah. And I was wondering about earlier in your yeah. career if you did try a hand at these sort of non-genre, totally. non-metaphor, uh, slathered stories. So what was your idea of what a New Yorker story was? Well, I thought usually you were writing about divorce. <laughs> I, had, I had not been divorced, so I didn't know anything about it. Or therapy. Um, I had not been in therapy, so I didn't know anything about it. Connecticut. <laughs> Um, I hadn't lived in Connecticut, so I didn't know anything about it. Um, difficult, uh, rela- your relationship with difficult children. I had not had kids. Um, uh, alcoholism. I actually don't like to drink much. Um, so it was like it was like all these. I, that's what I thought uh, a New Yorker story was. Um, and and I would write stories and send them to the New Yorker. I wouldn't send money to subscribe i wouldn't bother reading that i wouldn't bother reading that rag but you know but i was i was happy for them to take my stories if they wanted were these really the subjects of your stories though pretty much pretty much the best of them was better than home you know better than home was was the only one of those mainstream actually there's a couple others there was a story called the saved um, and another one called The Widow's Breakfast. And I think The Widow's Breakfast is also on 20th Century Ghost, and that's about the 1930s, and, and um, you know, that's also a mainstream story that I did. So um, w- what do you think elevated these few after making a number? Of, and, and how many stabs at these did you make? In, in the case of Better Than Home, um, um, I, I knew what it was like to be the child of a successful man. And so I could write a story about a guy who managed a major league baseball team because I could imagine my way into that situation. And so that had something for me in it that, that gave it a spark that the other stories lacked. Um, in the case of The Widow's Breakfast, it was historical fiction. Um, and I've always loved historical fiction. I've always liked to think about, you know, um, being, you know, um, I'm always interested in suspense, and one of the great sources of suspense is um, what does it take to survive history? Um, you know, what does it take when you're, you know, a Jewish man with a successful thriving shop in Germany in 1937? You know, can you, we know as a reader what's going to happen. Um, can this character survive the history that's coming at him like a freight train? Um, you know, um, so, so the widow's breakfast may have also worked because it was, um, 
historical. There's actually one other mainstream story in 20th Century Ghosts. There's a story called Bobby Conroy Comes Back from the Dead, mm-hmm. which is a, a sort of almost like a rom-com, like a 30-page rom-com about a washed-up comedian. He couldn't make it in New York. He comes back to Monroeville, Pennsylvania in 1978. He gets a day job as a zombie on Dawn of the Dead, <laughs> and he bumps into his old flame um, and reignites his relationship with, with her. They're both zombies for a day. <laughs> and um, and I could write about that because I had I had worked on Creepshow as a kid. I had been a child actor on Creepshow, so I knew George Romero and I knew Tom Savini, and I felt like I could write about their guerrilla style filmmaking. Sure. Um, so, so it seems that like early on, the personal connection was very important. Absolutely, to elevate these uh, these stories. Absolutely. Um, does that continue to be true? Well, well, what happened was so so. Obviously, eventually, I started writing stuff about ghosts. Um, what happened was I, I had fallen in love with um, the writings of um, Bernard Malmed with The Fixer and The Natural and uh, The Assistant, his short stories. And I stumbled across a, an essay by Bernard Malmed called Why Fantasy? And Why Fantasy made an argument. The argument was that Philip Roth's New Jersey is as much a figment of his imagination as Wonderland is of Lewis Carroll's. Neither of these places actually exists. We think New Jersey exists because we've seen it on a map and maybe we've driven through it. But the New Jersey in Philip Roth's novels is a figment of his imagination. It only exists between the pages of those hardcovers. And so Malmed said, with that in mind, once you accept that all fiction is make-believe, you can look at the tools of fantasy, you can look at the sleeping princess, you can look at the ghost, the fallen angel, the dragon, and say, these are useful metaphors. Um, and it would be a shame to deny, deny yourself the chance to use these incredibly powerful tools. And I just, I desperately needed someone to give me permission to write the stories I loved. And Bernard Malmed gave me that permission. I mean, when I grew up, you know, my friends like subscribed to like Sports Illustrated because they were, you know, they loved baseball, they loved football, or they'd subscribe to Rolling Stone because they loved metal or they loved, you know, they loved rock. I subscribed to one magazine and it was Fangoria. You know, Fangoria was this magazine of gross out special effects and everything. My bedroom was decorated with the pinups that pulled out of the middle, but these weren't like girly pinups. This was always like some guy with a machete in his head and one eyeball popping out. And I loved that stuff. I loved it. My first, the first job I ever wanted in my life when I grew up, I wanted to be Tom Savini and do gross out special effects. And in a way, my dreams came true. <laughs> That's all I have. <laughs> um, let's uh, let's go back and talk about your process, the day to day. I mean, you spent the last year or more than a year working on uh, four the years on the farm. So let's talk about that. Yeah. What did those four years look like? What did it look like on a day to day basis? Big cry in the morning. Just start, just, you know. Is that true? No. We, listen, for those who listen to the podcast, there are many writers who start that way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, um, I started writing longhand about five or six years ago. You didn't always work that I way. I didn't always work that way. Why the, why that the way. transition? Worked, um, Neil Gaiman kept telling me to try it. And, I guess you listen. And my girlfriend who's here tonight, um, Christina, kept telling me to try it. She okay. said, it's great. Very freeing. Um, another writer I know named Cat Howard urged me to try it. And, and um, I was 
on the road um, doing promotional stuff, and I didn't have my computer, and I had an idea for a story, and I bought a notebook and a pen, and I started trying, and it was awesome. What is the difference? The difference. Okay, so I so before I was a novelist, I was a comic book writer. My my I sort of discovered myself as a comic book writer. I love comics. I love writing for comics, and and probably the most fun project I've ever worked on in my life was Lock and Key. Um, <laughs> we agree with you. The, the um, I had I had such a blast with that story, and it was just a great experience. And and um, I co-created that story with Gabriel Rodriguez, who is an artist from Chile. Um, brilliant guys like my brother, love Gabe. And and you know when Gabe draws a page, um, he starts by lightly sketching. You know, there's almost just like shapes. He was working in a blue pencil, and he sort of. He's, he's framing the structure of a page almost like an architectural design, figuring out what goes where and how to make, make everything flow and look right. It's very loose sketching. And I've come to see the notebook as the same part of the process. It's just like cartooning, and I'm doing a loose sketch. No one is ever going to see that notebook but me. You know, no one is ever going to see all my crappy ideas laid out there or all my terrible sentences, <laughs> you know, spread it. So I'm just so and that's very freeing. It turns off the internal critic, you know, so you're just free to write. And the other thing which is great is I can leave notes to myself, mm-hmm. you know, so I'll like write a page and then I'll write something else in red pen up top saying, um, you know, uh, uh drop that middle paragraph and insert everything from page two to five here. It'll be better here, sure. you know, and, um, or, or, uh, I was working on a short story and I wrote this, um, I was writing a short story for an anthology very recently and it was, it turned out to be huge. It was like 50 pages long, filled a notebook. And in the middle, there's a story within the story. And I wrote that. And when I do- finished writing that story within the story, I put a giant binder clip on it. Um, and I wrote, this is the actual short story on top. And it's true. That's that. But you continued writing the the other story. Yeah. To write, I finished the other story too, because I may, uh, that will be something else at some point. But the, the story within a story became the story that's actually for this anthology. Mm -hmm. I just had to write a bunch of other, you had to discover it. it Yeah. I had to, I had to, you know, I had to work my way to it. Is it, is it, uh, more freeing in the sense that, you know, you can't so easily look back and delete? Well, I also think when you when you you spend all day writing on the computer, it's so easy to fool yourself into believing you did nothing. You know, um, um, all day, all you ever do is fill that screen. Even if you wrote ten pages, it's still the same screen. But if you write ten pages in a notebook, you can feel it and see it. It's there. There's physical sign of your progress. The other thing is on the notebook I work in. There's no Twitter. <laughs> there's there's no Wikipedia, and I actually have a room that I work on the a room in in my house that I do all the first drafts in that has no internet in that room. I think of it as the analog room. <laughs> it has a record player and vinyl, and I put my records on. I listen to instead of you know, and it's like so. There are so many ways to distract yourself. You get playing around with iTunes. You got everything on random. You start moving songs around and trying to get the perfect playlist. <laughs> you're being creative, but what you're doing is you're being creative about the playlist when you should be being creative about the work. So I just, I put on a record and I sit there with the notebook. I've got the door shut. Um, the phone is turned off. It's not even in the room with me and it's turned off downstairs in the kitchen. Um, what kind of hours do you keep? Um, so, so I get up. Um, if I have the kids, I have the kids every other week. If I get the ki- have the kids, I get the kids to school. I come back. I have a cup of tea, a breakfast. I read the New York Times. Um, then it's time to work. And I work until the kids get home from school. Um, and I, you know, and, and I may have, I'll, I'll, gen- I, I'll 
try to finish the larger chunk, the important creative chunk of the work before I eat lunch. Mm-hmm. There's still more work to do after lunch. It's great to have lunch at 1230, but if it's going good, I'll push it off until 130 or even 230 to, to try to get that, to try to make it all one creative movement mm-hmm. without interruption. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And is it is it all writing for you? I mean, it, clearly this is how the thoughts come. This is how the discovery yeah. process happens for you. Well, when it's rewrite, you, when it's rewrite, I've got the notebook here sure. and the computer open, and I'm going back and forth, and I'm rewriting. Some people ask, do you transcribe? Do you have someone transcribe for you? That would be... a that would be a huge mistake. Um, it would remove me from the process. What's great is I'm doing a complete from scratch rewrite as I work from the notebook. So I've got the notebook here and I'm typing in and I'm changing things You're as I go. You're getting another I'm, draft. In your I'm getting another draft. And I'm inventing stuff too. You know, I'll have sometimes one sentence will stand in for three pages of, of material. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll look at that sentence and say, this is a great idea for a scene. Now I'm going to expand on it. <laughs> um, so, you know, I sometimes think, I sometimes think the drafts are like almost like a set of lungs that keep inflating and shrinking and inflating and shrinking. Um, you know, you, you're, you chop out material and then you find new scenes that are good but could be better. And so those expand. So there's this constant contraction and expansion um, that I think is natural. But eventually you want to end with contraction. So you, you keep pretty reasonable hours. Uh, what are you listening to, by the way? What um, records do you put I on? I used to listen to – I used to always listen to music um, when I work. In recent years, less and less. Um, never when I'm writing dialogue because if I'm listening to music, it's just like being at a concert and trying to talk to a friend. You can't hear what the hell they're saying. You know, so you have to turn the music off to write dialogue. But if it's going good and if I'm writing a scene of action or a largely descriptive scene or, you know, um, um, I'll have a record on, um, you know um, – Usually, you know, like Beatles, Stones, um, Springsteen. Do you like writing? Do you like the process? <laughs> Here we go. We're getting into it. Do you like writing? <laughs> Do you like writing? I like it better than I like it better than any other job I could conceivably be fit for. <laughs> there are some kinds of writing I like better than others. Like, I love writing comics. It's so fun, and it's so easy. And it's like, it just feels easy. And it's like, compared to other kinds of writing. Um, and it's like being in a band, you know? It's like it's like I'm the drums, and Gabriel Rodriguez is the guitar, and, you know, Chris Ryle is doing, on the keyboards, and Robbie Robbins, who did the lettering, is like the vocals, you know? And, and, and that's a great feeling of, like, companionship. We're all in it together, and it's so exciting. And just pleasure from start to finish. That's why I stopped doing it. <laughs> It's fun and easy, and I wanted to do things that are hard and and can have a different kind of payoff. Um, writing novels is much harder, um, but the rewards are are very satisfying. Um, you know, when I always think of you, so you're talking about all these great writers you've interviewed. Have you ever interviewed Brian K. Vaughn? I have. Okay. Brian K. Vaughn has this great thing where he says, yeah, that was really hard to write. And by hard, I mean nothing like coal mining. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, there are hard jobs. Like, like teaching first grade. <laughs> teaching first grade. I mean, like, I, some, sometimes they even pee themselves in first grade still. You know? Terrible things happen in first grade. Really? When I was in second grade, um, we used to go out 
it had this huge concrete playground and there was this this is how second graders work this is what's exciting to second graders there was a giant metal chimney stack well, I, I don't know what it did anymore, but you could creep around behind it against the wall and, you know, crawl around behind it during recess. And some kid had gone back there and taken a dump. <laughs> and it like, and this was Maine and it froze, it fossilized. And every day on recess, what we first thing we did was me and a bunch of friends trooped to see if the dump was still there. <laughs> like every day, this Absolutely. was like, and this is what you do for fun <laughs> when you're nine. You check the frozen dump. You know, as long as you're just checking, and there are adults, it. and there are adults who have to deal with this. Like they get paid not nearly enough to deal with this. So I have, I mean, even a bad day of writing is like. I asked my dad once um, um, what the worst movie he ever saw was, and he named some film, and he said um, the worst movie I ever saw in my life was still awesome. You know, and I kind of feel that way. Like the worst day of writing I ever had in my life was still awesome sure. because I got to make stuff up for a living. It's a hard job, but it's a good job. Yeah. Um, let's talk about comic books for yeah. a moment. Um, I, it seems like you really you love the collaboration of yeah, comics. Totally. I mean, like film, like TV, it's a very collaborative medium. Um, and you've written screenplays with your brother, as you say. Yeah, yeah. Um, why not pursue more of that? Um, well, I'm sure I will. I mean, you know, my so so between the time when I started writing as Joe Hill and when I eventually sold my first book, um, I wrote four books I was never able to sell, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, and and I reached a point where I began to think maybe I don't have it in me. You know, I took my best swing, um, you know, maybe I didn't have enough talent. Um, you know, to make it. Not everyone can make it. Um, but I had started to write short stories and I had started, some of these short stories were scary and some were funny and they all had elements, weird elements in them. And some had won prizes and been published in good magazines. And I felt like I know how to write a short story, you know, and, and I got somewhere anyway. And then a talent scout at Marvel Comics read one of my short stories and said, how would you feel about writing about men in tights punching each other in the face? And I, I said, sign me up. Sounds awesome. And, and there, was, there, was, there was a kind of magic in that because my first ever professional fiction submission was to Marvel Comics when I was 12 years old. There was a thing called the Marvel Tryout Book. Yeah. Any of you guys see the Marvel Tryout Book? It was like half a Spider-Man comic. If you were a colorist, there were pages for you to color. If you were an artist, there were pages for you to draw. And if you were a writer, you had to write the end of the story. And I actually wrote the end of the story and sent it in when I was 12 to the editor in chief Jim Shooter yep. who sent me back a form rejection but <laughs> but down at the bottom of the form rejection was something he had scribbled something that I couldn't decipher um, but I felt like he was telling me I came this close <laughs> and I was totally like I'm on my way man so so I I wrote this story for Spider-Man Unlimited an 11 page mm-hmm. story and and I felt like I didn't make it as a novelist, but maybe I'm going to get to do this. And this is pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was in high school, all my favorite writers, all in my formative years, all my favorite writers were comic book guys. Mm -hmm. It was Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman and Chris Claremont. I loved Chris Claremont. Let me, let me stop you here for a sec. Um, Having written for Marvel myself and getting to play with those toys, uh, What'd you write for Marvel? Listen, no big deal. Okay. This is about you. Okay. <laughs> What'd you write for Marvel? We wrote uh, Deadpool and Thunderbolts and uh, a bunch of stuff. We have a awesome. new Deadpool story coming next year, you guys. Um, but 
getting to play with those toys is so exciting. Yeah. And suddenly it's it's your 12-year-old self, right? Going, what do I want Spider-Man yeah, to do? Yeah. But you're not 12 years old. Right. You have to create a story. So when you had this opportunity to write Spider-Man, how did you attack it? Yeah, I choked. I mean, that's the thing. Is that's the that's the thing. The the weird the weird sort of coda to this is my worst published piece of work ever oh, is no. my Spider Man story because I just I was so I'm like it's my big breakthrough it's my big chance and I just just choked. You get overwhelmed, right? Yeah, I I, I did I did I would do it so much better now. But at the time, and I was kind of saved. A lot of people who read the comic actually like it. But I think the reason they like it is because I was paired with a brilliant young artist named Seth, um, who made all my not funny jokes funny, and. He did beautiful work, and he claimed to like the script and was excited to work with me again. And and I had such a blast writing it, even though I choked, even though I knew it was terrible. I was just dying to do it again. Yeah. I you know, wrote all these pitches and stuff, and me and Seth were going to work together. Um, Seth fell off a building in Tokyo um, shortly after it was published, and uh, and I never got a chance to work with I him didn't again. Know. Yeah, Seth oh died. He's um, a great artist. Yeah, Seth, Seth Fisher. Yeah. yeah. Amazing artist. Amazing yeah, young yeah. artist. Let's, uh, I want to get a little technical on comics sure. for a second. Sure. Uh, in writing Lock and Key, which is, again, we, we clapped before, but it's a great Thanks. book. Um, how, how do you script? What's your method? I do the uh, I do the thing where because I'm a control freak I do the thing where it's like this is what's happening in panel one this is what's happening in panel two, um, you know. I think, but I think the perfect sequence you know you've done a really good job with the sequence if there's no word balloons in it that perversely the job of writing a comic sure. is to have as few words as possible on the page, um, you know and and I felt like you know the. I was so excited when I wrote the end of the first issue, and there are three almost completely silent pages. This little boy, Bodhi, finds a key, a, go- a, a skeleton key, and he opens a door and he steps through, and his body falls dead, and his spirit separates from his body. And then there's a moment when he's realizing what's happened, when he's looking at his ghostly form, and he's freaked out, and he <laughs> flies back in through the ghost door, and the door slams, you know, and that's the end of the comic. And the whole sequence doesn't have a single word in it, and I felt like I did it. I nailed something, you know. I, I stuck this one. Um, Did you? La- I want to go back to that moment and that script because obviously you knew who your artist was going right, to be on this, right? Right. Uh, my editor on the comic was Chris Ryle, and when we were picking an artist, he knew he wanted Gabe to draw it, but he wanted to give me the illusion of choice. <laughs> so he sent me Gabe's art and art by two other artists who were terrible. And he's like, "Who do you want?" I'm like, ah, "I'm." towards Gabriel Rodriguez, I think. And he's like, good choice. Um, so did, you know, I'm not asking you to, you know, throw him under the bus or anything, but was there, was there a back and forth on that sequence because it is a silent uh, series? You know, the weird thing about Gabe, we fell into it almost right away. I mean, really? almost from the start, we were like an old married couple where, That's you know, amazing. he'd finish my sentences and I'd finish his and we'd laugh at all the same jokes. And he he, he completely seemed to get where I was coming from. And then as I started to see his pictures come in, you know, I felt like I was learning as much about the characters from his illustrations as he ever learned about the characters from anything I wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it was a true collaboration. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, there was a TV show. Um, Lock and Key was bought by Fox, 
Um, they made a $10 million pilot. It came out beautifully. Um, It's It's an even better pilot script, and you can kind of find it online. Josh Friedman wrote it, who's fantastic. Not Josh Friedman. uh, Josh Josh Friedman. Yeah, Yeah. Josh Friedman. I thought you said Josh Friedman. I would would never. That would be, yeah. um, um, No, it's way better than that. The pilot came out great and, of course, led, you know, to it is now in its third hit season in in my imagination, you know. And but, But the great part, so when they were filming it, the great part was they filmed it in Pittsburgh and Gabe came in and I came in and every night we'd go watch him film and then we'd come back to the hotel bar and we'd sit around and we'd talk about what was going to happen next in Lock and Key and me and him figured out the last 18 issues together over drinks in Pittsburgh and it was such a we had so much fun it was so great great. Um, would you ever write prose that way that kind of collaborative like a writer's room for prose could yeah. it be done? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they, they do it on Breaking Bad. And they do it in Walking Dead. And they do it they, when they sit. You just said it yourself when they sit around in the writer's room. You know? But could you do it for a novel? Or does that have to be a singular voice? I mean, these shows are singular I voices, mean, I was but thinking still. about this. Like, I always go back to the Beatles, you know? And I was thinking, like, if you wanted to put together the movie Beatles, you could. You know, it's Scorsese, Coppola, Lucas, and Spielberg. Right? You know? Which is which? I think Lucas is Ringo. <laughs> we can all agree. That's tough. That's a tough one to say, but I think maybe he is, you know. Um, Coppola is probably... Spielberg's McCartney, right? I think Spielberg's, a Spielberg's McCartney. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, he writes pop yeah. songs. Scorsese's uh, Lennon, and then, then I think you've got... Yeah, and it's I George. Coppola's George. Totally yeah. right. Correct yeah. answers. Okay, <laughs> all right. The Beatles of video games is uh, Pac-Man, uh-huh. um, Galaga... <laughs> Uh, Missile Command and Burger Time. And I admit Burger Time is Ringo, even though it's my favorite. Even though it's favorite. But Burger Time is great. People love Ringo. He's yeah. beloved. Yeah, yeah, And now. You know, come on. Octopus's Garden is a great song. So, yeah. You know, not going that far. It's just a good song. It's a anyway. good song. It's for children. Um... Um, what were we talking about? Well, the thing is, is I was trying, I was trying to think. Actually, on my ride down to Boston, would it be possible to write a book the way the Beatles wrote songs? Mm-hmm. Like, like, could I write a book with another really, you know, another writer that I like that I think is fun and has a great voice? Mm-hmm. And then could we take that book and give it to another writer to rewrite? Oh, right. And then maybe one more writer to edit. Yeah, it can be done. Did they? Yeah, but yeah, those I are hate. unreadable. I know. I hate the beat. That's not a good argument <laughs> yeah. for the process. I God. hate the... Get an know. editor. Yeah. <laughs> Where's your George Martin? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, see, I mean, and I think that's, I think that's where you start to run it. I don't know if maybe, maybe it's just, it can be done, but I just think stories tend to come from one voice that when we get stories as children, your dad tells you a story, you know, someone tells you a story, um, you know, when you go out with a friend, they tell you a story about, you know, this crazy thing happened to me when I was at Fenway Park or this, you know, or this is why I wound up divorced. This is the story that explains the divorce or whatever it is. Um, you can get some collaborations. Sometimes you'll go see like an old married couple and they'll tell the story together, you know, and they're contradicting each other. And And so, and I think that's why it is possible to find a book where it's collaborative, Mm -hmm. you know, where it's, you know, where you're excited and satisfied and and it seems to work. Did you get that the same thing that you got from comics and writing screenplays with your brother? Yeah, we had a great time. We had a great, so, so the flip side of this story, because, you know, like, um, um, I, I, I wrote as Joe Hill, um, and I, you know, I had all these rejections. I collected all these piles of rejection letters and had all these novels turned on. Sounds 
no, it sounds really cool. It sounds noble, you know. And <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that noble. The the I also wrote screenplays as Joseph Kang with my brother. Everyone knew who we were. We sold screenplays. We made because I just had a point where I didn't want to live off my parents. Where I felt like sure. this is shameful. I've got to. I have to go out and earn, you know. And and so um, me and Owen went out and wrote some screenplays. And and it, you know we had great sort of film business experiences. We, I remember we wrote a murder mystery and in the process of rewriting it for one producer after another, every single character in the book got to be the killer, you know? I mean, it just changed. It was like playing literary clue, you know, every draft, it would be a new murderer, you know, because we were responding to someone's and we had the, we had the film meeting. We had a screenplay that had been, you know, purchased that, you know, we were excited about. And then the producer who purchased it left and we came in and met the new two, the two new producers, producers and they we had a story meeting and they sat across from the table and one of them said we love the girlfriend character we really like you to do more with the girlfriend character moments later the guy sitting next to him said hate the girlfriend can you cut the girlfriend out and me and owen are sitting next to each other and i'm like grabbing his leg and we're like can they hear each other you know it was like is there like a sound barrier between them like some glass there that we can't see it was amazing moments apart Oh, you know, so um, I want to uh, ask one more thing and then we're going to get questions from you guys. Do you guys have questions? Yes. OK. These four novels that you wrote yeah. that were not published. Yeah. Um, do you were you able in retrospect to look back at those and learn something from those? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what, you what know, you learn? and and and, you know, I spent I, I've told this story often and some of you have probably heard it before. But, I, you know, one of them was uh, a book called The Fear Tree that I spent three years on. It was like the size of a George R. R. Martin novel, um, you know, and it was turned down everywhere. It was turned down in New York. It was turned down in London for an extra kick in the pants. It was turned down in Canada. Um, you know, and 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 it was for me at the time, it was a real blow. But in retrospect, I look back and I say that was the pen name doing its work. You know, it was preventing a mediocre piece of work from getting published because I still had things to learn. I still had to learn how to write dialogue. I still had to learn how to get the story up front. Um, you know, get the get the concept for the story up there. You can't wait until page fifty to get the most interesting scene. You know, to to, to explain what the concept of your book is. You can't even wait to chapter three. Best to have it right on page one, maybe in the first paragraph. You know, in the first sentence. I wrote a short story called Pop Art, and the first sentence is: um, um, When I was twelve years old, my best friend was inflatable. You know, that's what you Love want. That, is you you want to have you want to have the big idea right up front. Um, you just can't afford to wait. The cat videos are out there waiting to steal your readers. Um, and I, oh, I, just say, I just say that I look at all those books and I don't think anything is wasted. I don't think any, everything is a rough draft for something that will be good later. In the case of The Fear Tree, The Fear Tree had one underlying concept that was interesting. It had a character who had a limited psychic power, which is when he touched someone, when he was in the vicinity of someone, he could see what they were most afraid of. It With seven or eight years of evolution that became a man who could see what people's greatest sins were which was the plot of horns you know what are you most ashamed of what is the worst thing you've ever done you know it's basically the same concept um and it was all the way back there in the fear tree i wrote a failed novel called the briars about um two high school uh kids um one um tortured and uh brilliant um, and emotionally uh, disassociated and his thuggish best friend. Um, the two boys were named Sam Lesser and Al Grubb and they went on a killing spree in Vermont, New Hampshire. The book 
was a failure, total failure, but those characters and it one scene from that book became the first issue of Lock and Key. Um, so, um, what what made that book? Let's pick that one specifically. Not work. What made it a failure to you? Um, they didn't kill anyone to page one hundred and fifty. <laughs> But there's a way that that can work. I was trying too right? hard to be Cormac McCarthy, too. A lot of, lot of these Old Testament sentences, <laughs> you know, perchance when the sun rose in the blood-red dawn. Well, we can become a slave to our influences, yeah. right? Uh, did yeah. you find that with, with other material you worked on? You know, um, um, I mean, I, I hope it doesn't sound like too groaningly pretentious, but I always think that the books are sort of me having conversations with my influences, sure. you know, that I've, um, I remember doing an interview after Heart Shaped Bach came out and, um, it was a very adversarial interview with this, uh, English journalist. And every time I said, um, do you have any ideas of your own? And I said, oh, well, Kerouac said, <laughs> you know, and I came up with, you know, some other, some other quote or something. Um, um, you know, Heart Shaped Box is very much uh, about, you know, the way I feel about certain M.R. James ghost stories and, and about the way I feel about Richard Matheson stories, you know, and, and um, Heart Shaped Box is like Duel, only with a ghost instead of a truck. That's great. Um, you know, um, uh, Nosferatu, NOS 482, um, is, is it, it's a John Carpenter movie. You know, it's that's my, you know, uh, and in some ways it's also it's also a James Cameron film. Mm -hmm. You know, it's you know, Vic is kind of like Ripley or like Sarah Connor. She's one of those. She's tough in the way of a James Cameron heroine, you know, and and I love those movies when I was a kid. I remember I, I, you know, um, I bought uh, the script for Aliens at a comic convention and I read it over. This was pre-internet and I read it over and over again. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, Lock and Key is very much, you know, a response it wouldn't exist without sandman if i hadn't read if if, you know if sandman was this formative comic that i read you know when i was just getting out of high school and going into college Mm -hmm. and i thought it did everything i wanted a story to do and when i when i went into lock and key i thought i i want there to you know i i felt like i was on solid ground because i felt like the keys were like dreams you know just like in dreams and sandman he could use dreams as a vehicle to tell any kind of story he wanted to tell and i felt like the keys were the same way any kind of story i wanted to tell there was always a key for it there's always another door to open it's it's interesting i wouldn't necessarily see any of the dna of those things in the products but that's what happens right yeah. it gets filtered through you it becomes a different thing i knew that my spider-man sucked and so um and so when i got a chance to work on lock and key to write it i was determined it wasn't going to suck and so i studied i studied the work of who i thought was the best writer working in comics at the time which was brian k vaughn mm-hmm. and i looked at i looked at why last man and i deconstructed the way the issues fl- flow the flow of the issues to the point where i was counting how many panels he used per page mm-hmm. you know if he uses a four four panels on this page how many on the next page and if you if i look at the first six issues they just smell like brian k vaughn to me really? you know the whole like you know i was really determined like if i ever had six panels on a page i'm like that's one too many you know something's got to go <laughs> um i was really determined to keep up the kind of flow to make sure that there were the big full page spreads yep. the big reveals at least twice an issue wow. um and that was stuff i learned from you know studying you know almost breaking 
breaking Brian K. Vaughn's comics down into math. Mm-hmm. How many words per page? Well, this is something. Yeah, this is something we recommend all the time for any aspiring writers. Is you know, if you want to write a TV show, look at one that do the math that you like and reverse engineer it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it works. To this day, to this day, I will sometimes. You know, I haven't. Uh, I will. I remember when I was working on Horns, I was in a really bad place. I was really struggling, and I started doing warm ups to start my day. And my warm up was I would sit down with the Big Bounce by Elmore Leonard, and I would copy in a page of the Big Bounce, feeling his sentences, oh, feeling wow. the way he wrote dialogue, getting. And then when I got to the next page, I'd write three or four of my own sentences. Mm-hmm. Then I'd put the Big Bounce aside and I'd go to work on Horns. And that ramp up work. And I'd ramp up. And actually, Horns doesn't read anything no. like an Elmore Leonard novel. But but I needed. I just needed to feel that flow and mm-hmm. feel those rhythms, you know. And then I could start. It was like loose. It was like stretching before a run. Then right. I could go. I actually had a fantasy that I was going to finish the Big Bounce in my own way, and then I was going to publish it online. <laughs> and it was going to be the Bigger Bounce by Joe Hill and Elmore sure. Leonard. But but after I got to a point where I had rewritten about thirty pages of the Big Bounce, and then Horns just started to flow, and mm-hmm. I was okay. That's, that's and I didn't really need it anymore. That's it. All right, let's get some questions yeah. from you guys. <laughs> How much of Lock and Key changed from your initial pitch? Because you wrote it over years, and it felt like you had so many payoffs that you knew were coming. Um, I just wanted to see how much uh, changed over that time. Right. Lock and Key started, so I did a series, after I wrote Spider-Man Unlimited, I did a series of pitches for Marvel Comics. And I remember one was Baby Hulk. You know, because I had at at that point I had a toddler and I had not expected to I had not expected toddler tantrums and I had not anticipated what that rage was like when they're just screaming and they pick up a plastic truck and throw it. And I thought, what if it was a real truck? So I did I did Baby Hulk, which for some reason Marvel didn't want. But I I did do I did I pitched them on this idea of a house that was full of impossible keys and they didn't want it. DC didn't want it. I think I tried Dark Horse and they didn't want it. But it it sat around in my head and I would be out at like 11 in the evening driving off to CVS to get you know, diapers, and I'd have an idea for a new key. So it kind of percolated for a long time. That said, I, I feel that narratively um, we didn't raise any mysteries in lock and key that we didn't answer, and that the answers are fairly elegant and simple as opposed to, like, requiring pages of explanation. And you know, we hate that, right? We hate when we're, like, getting to the end of the movie or the end of the TV show, and we just get these info dumps that explain <laughs> all the intricate mysteries and stuff. It's totally unsatisfying. You want the last – you want the ending of something to be about the characters, to be about, you know – Every character finally revealed us who they really are and making their stand. Um, and so when I went in, I was flying from the hip. Um, and, you know, and I, I told IDW I was going to be able to do the whole series in six issues. And they believed me, <laughs> you know, and I was only off by 31, um, you know, and 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 but at some point. Yeah, about seven or eight issues in, I had a chance for a journalist. A journalist asked me if I wanted to ask Alan Moore a question. And I said, how important is it to know the solutions to your mysteries um, when you set the mysteries up? And Alan Moore essentially said, only a total asshat would, would pose mysteries in a story without knowing the solutions. And then I realized I was that asshat. Um, so so at, that point, at that point, Gabe and I put our heads together and we created a Bible. Just like for a TV show, we created a story Bible and we explained everything up to the moment Dodge wound up in the well, which is where we meet Dodge in issue one or issue issue two. 
We meet Dodge in the well on issue two. And, and we figured out everything, even down to the comb. At one point, Dodge is combing her hair down in that well. And we had an explanation for how the comb got there. <laughs> and that was, that was, you know, but that we were seven or eight issues in by then. Uh, you know, we're going to use some of these questions as jumping off points for more conversation. Yeah. But uh, Lock and Key is a complete story. Yeah. Um, but something happens when you've been writing something for five or six years. Yeah. Uh, there may be more stories to tell. Do you feel that with Lock and Key? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the, uh, I love, you know, I love the house. The house is a great character. You know, I always wanted to have a series character. You know, I love Sherlock Holmes. I, I love Travis McGee. Um, you know, I love the Patrick O'Brien novels about Aubrey and Matron. Uh, Matron. You know, those are great. I always wanted to have my own series character. I didn't expect my series character to be a house. Um, but there are great stories there. And, and, you know, I'm hoping at some point in the next uh, 12 to 18 months to, um, to write a story called Lock and Key Revolution, which is about how the Locke family won the Revolutionary War. Because when you think about it, you know, we were wildly overmatched. I mean, you know, the British Army, the British Marines were the finest army in the world. There's no way we could have won without Key House. <laughs> That's great. Um, as a comic, as a as starting out as a comic book writer, um, switching over, transitioning to as a to a regular writer. Yeah. While writing your novels, um, did you enjoy? Um, writing one novel over another as opposed to writing comics? Hmm. Well, they've all had their pleasures. Except for Horns. No. Horns had, <laughs> Horns had its pleasures, too. No, they've all had their pleasures. Um, uh, there, was a, there was a thing when I was working on Heart Shaped Box when I thought Heart Shaped Box would just be a short story. You know, I thought this incredible douchebag is going to buy this ghost online and he's going to realize what a terrible mistake he's made too late and it's going to eat him for breakfast. And, and the only problem was that Judas Coyne refused to die on my schedule. You know, I really thought he'd be dead by page 30, but he kept stubbornly hanging around. And so that was fun. It became the game. It, he, it was like whack-a-mole. You know, the question was, how, when am I going to nail Jude? How long can he survive? And it turned out he, he had a lot of resistance in him, that there was a lot of fight in Judas Coyne, and that was fun. Um... You know, uh, and I had some of the same experiences working on Nosferatu. There's a scene in early in Nosferatu when a teenage Vic McQueen runs afoul of this sort of vampire, Charlie Manx. Charlie Manx has a car that runs on human souls instead of gasoline, and he's been draining children of their souls for almost 100 years. And she runs into Charlie Manx in his house this little house um, in Colorado and there's this running battle and she very, very narrowly escapes him and she gets away and it's this running long sequence of her, you know, fighting for her life and it never seems like she's going to be able to make it out. She does. She makes it out. She escapes. A motorcyclist rescues her and takes her down the road to a gas station and it's just like she made it and she gets inside the gas station and she looks out the window and Charlie Manx is pulling up to the gas pumps out front and it's like it hasn't stopped yet. And I love that when you can just like when the trap doors keep opening, <laughs> you know, the, the reader keeps thinking like, oh, I finally got my feet on solid ground. Nope. And you open the trap door again. That can be tremendously fun. Um, but still, the day-to-day work can be a grind. That can, you know, I mean, even when it's really fun, it can be, you know, figuring out how can I put this in a nice, simple, clean, jolting sentence. 
you know that can that's it's like working on a crossword puzzle <laughs> you've shown facility in any number of media when a story arrives to you uh do you have to figure out where it goes what medium it belongs it in? always seems i always seem to know from the moment the idea comes really? you know i always see i have there's a there's an idea I've been sitting on for a few years that's a comic book idea. Mm-hmm. I don't know when I'm going to get around to write it or if I'll ever get around mm-hmm. to writing it, but it's a comic book idea, not a novel. And I don't know, just because maybe because I saw the first scene as a sequence of panels. Um, I think if I see, I think that might be something. If I see, you know, sometimes sometimes you can feel rhythms and the rhythms tell you whether it's a comic or a novel. You know, um, this this comic that I haven't written yet that I'm thinking about, I can see the first four panels and then I can see the big reveal on the second page. Hmm. So I know it's a comic, not a, not a novel. And how long will you sit with something like that until you either have the time or have the wherewithal to, to actually com- start doing that it? That comic I've been sitting with since, um, I think the first issue of Lock and Key came out in... <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Um, 2008. I think the first issue of Lock and Key came out in 2008. So I've been sitting on it since 2008 because I had it. I had the idea as I was working on the first issues mm-hmm. of Lock and Key. So you know, is there ever time to write all of the things you want to write? No. <laughs> I just no. want to remind you of that. Yeah. No. <laughs> You mentioned that one activity earlier, but what other sort of things do you do when you reach a point of like creative? Which bank- activity? The rewriting beard? the. Well, yeah, I feel yeah. you on that. Right. Uh, but the rewriting the novel to get the creative juices flowing. What right. other sorts of things do you do when you have like co- sort of creative bankruptcy or ah. are frustrated and don't really want to write, but know you should be writing? Um, usually, you have to step away for a minute. It is. It really is like working on a crossword puzzle. You know, you can do a cross. You're sitting there with the New York Times puzzle in the morning. You do a bunch of it, and then you get stuck. And you're like, oh, I don't know what to do with this corner. I can't see it. So you walk away for a couple minutes, but maybe you come back over lunch and suddenly it's all there. You just start – you're like, oh, of course it's this. You know, you just sort of need to – you need to step away long enough um, to, you know, get a slightly different perspective to sort of clear your mind and let, and let the machinery of your unconscious do some work. Um, you know, and, and you, there's big machinery in there, big, you know, big gears, but you have to give them time to turn. Um, so when I'm working on something, if I don't, if I don't see what the next line is, or I'm frustrated, or if I can't decide what a character should do, I'll get up and make some tea. Um, if I'm really stuck, it's probably time to go for a jog. Um, and there's very, very few problems that can't be solved, um, with a jog generally, (laughs) but you know, you know, a lot of times it tends to be not knowing what to do. It tends to be not being able to decide what to do. So you'll say you'll come to a juncture where a character could do this or could do that, and you can't decide how the story will play. And I probably people who outline don't have this problem, but I don't outline. <laughs> um, I think they have I, the problem, which is earlier in the process. Yeah, I think outlines are tools of the devil. Um, <laughs> when you come to one of these forks and you can't decide what to do, that's when you're getting in the way of the character because the character always knows what to do, and you have to you have to you have to be brave enough to let the character do what they would really do, even if it feels like it would risk destroying the story. Um, it almost never does, but you feel like if they, you know, if they make this choice, suddenly I've got no story. I mean, think about, think about all the artificial barriers they set up to keep someone trapped in a house in a ghost story or whatever, you know, it can be, it can be so much braver to do what they did in it follows where it doesn't matter if they leave the house because it's going to follow, (laughs) you know? And, and so there's, you can't get, give the characters a chance to do the smart thing and then screw them over. Um, there's almost always a way. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. 
How do you find the difference in structure in comics where it's very specific? You have page lengths and even in odd pages and a certain number of panels versus in novels where there is no specific structure. How do you find that affects the process of writing? Is it harder to write a book because you don't have that specific right. structure? That's why, comics, that's why comics are easy because comics have a formal structure like a haiku or a sonnet. Um, they're, they're, you know, an average comic is 22 pages long and there are secret rules that people don't know, but if you... You know, if you've talked to people who write comics, you learn them. Like, a big full-page reveal always belongs on an even-numbered page. You never put it on an odd-numbered page. You always put it on it. Why? Because the even-numbered page is the page you see when you turn the page. So the the shock, the surprise of that big full-page reveal is ruined if it's an odd-numbered page. Um, which is something I found out writing my first issue of Lock and Key. <laughs> because in the first issue, I had my big, awesome reveal on page three. And everyone sees it. It's not a reveal anymore. Um, it's This is the dead bodies in the back of the pickup truck. And that was the first and last time I ever put a big reveal on page three, <laughs> you know, on an odd-numbered page. So, so comics have structure, and creative people love predefined, <laughs> prefabricated structure. They can climb right up at like, an, like a vine of ivy. Um, novels don't have that structure, and there's, there's the danger. You have to create it somehow. Otherwise, the ivy just puddles there in a big mess for people to step on and get tangled up in. Um, so somehow you have to artificially create a structure for, for the book. In the new one, The Fireman, um, uh, there, there is, there's a structure, and the structure is pregnancy. Um, the lead character, so the new book, The Fireman, um, is about a pathogen, a spore, that gets on people. It's called dragon skin. It looks very beautiful. It's like almost like a tattoo. It's black with a little gold speckling. You can't get it off you once you get it on you. And, and when you start to get stressed, it begins to smolder. And if you stress out too much, you explode into flames and die of spontaneous combustion. Um, and so, um, and 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 it's it's everywhere. It's in every country. It's all over the world. And people are exploding into flames in every street corner. Every hospital is burning. The CDC is in flames. No one can study it because the patients keep exploding into flame. Um, and in the midst of this, this young woman um, named Harper um, discovers she's she's contracted the dragon scale at about the same time she discovers she's pregnant and she knows because she's a medical person she knows that the spore doesn't pass through the placental wall and that her baby will almost certainly be born healthy and so she resolves to stay calm for the next nine months and to safely deliver her baby and that's that's the plot of the story and incidentally also provides me with structure because um, a pregnancy every pregnancy is a three-act play <laughs> that's a, that's an interesting premise as you know a writing challenge because it doesn't give you a lot of emotional territory to play with your protagonist i would think in if she's going to stay calm for the whole well she doesn't story. succeed <laughs> don't buy the book i guess the, um, well well the other thing is the other thing is in the course of her uh, you know her her struggles to stay alive um um, she hears about someone called the fireman, um, who is not in fact a fireman, although he dresses like one, and he's contracted this stuff, um, and somehow he's made friends with it, um, or at least he claims to have made friends with it. And so she decides he has what she needs to stay alive, um, and so she's, he becomes sort of her ally. Very cool. Uh, we have time for these last two questions. 
Uh, you spoke earlier of influences. Um, your work all reads very original, and um, there's no moment where it's like, oh, well, here's his Alan Moore moment or yeah. here's his Elmer Leonard moment. Um, my question is, as you're writing during the process, do you ever feel yourself getting derivative? And if so, how do you power through it? How do you combat that? First of all, it only reads as original to you. Fair enough. <laughs> every, every page, every line, I'm like, oh, that's Neil. <laughs> that's Ray Bradbury. Oh, I like this scene. It was better when Bernard Mountman did it, but I like it. But the other thing is, is you know, I think I think the way to avoid being derivative is to is to acknowledge to yourself and to your readers your influences and and to confront them instead of just laying down in bed with them. You know, you're actually facing off with your influences. You're challenging them. You're you're taking those ideas and saying, but what if this isn't true? Um, what if you were wrong about this? I'm going to fight you here. Um, you know, the fireman, um, the fireman has in some ways has some elements of the stand in it. In some ways it's a little bit like, you know, I, I made a joke um, that it's a little bit like I soaked the stand in gasoline and threw a match at it, <laughs> you know, and, and, um, but it has some disagreements with the stand too. It's not the same, it's not the same story. It's, it's a story that fights with this, that's sort of, you know, cheerfully, you know, crossing foils with the stand. Um, in other ways it has elements of Fahrenheit 451 and, you know, I stole the title from Ray Bradbury because the original title of Fahrenheit 451 was the fireman um, you know so so I've never written anything where I didn't feel that there was those influences weren't all over the place and and I just think you know the the key to not leaning on them is you know to you know to to fight with them since uh, comics come out issues over a long period of time yeah. compared to like a novel coming out all at once, did um, reader feedback ever play into the story at all? Like um, if they really liked a specific character, hated a specific character, did you change things based on that? No. <laughs> Correct answer. No. <laughs> the, um, you know, I read, it, I read an interesting thing about Breaking Bad, about how as they came towards the final season of Breaking Bad, the constant conversation in the writer's room is what do the viewers want? You know, and I do think it's important to keep in mind what the audience wants and to know when to give it to them and when they absolutely can't have it. Um, the best example I can think of of not of knowing when not to give what the audience what they want is people were shipping Mulder and Scully so hard you know for so many years they really wanted to see them get dirty with each other and 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 I feel that the X-Files was an amazing TV show year after year after year right up until Rolling Stone put Mulder and Scully on the cover of the magazine naked in bed together <laughs> At that moment, the audience finally had relief. They finally had what they always wanted. Even if it wasn't part of the show, they had Mulder and Scully in bed together. They got to see it. And from that moment on, you can that's the moment you can trace the beginning of the X-Files decline. Um, you know, because because what was really great about the, you know, the story was the romantic tension between these two people. Um, when that romantic tension was satisfied, the show had run its course. Um, of course, I can't wait for the new season, you know. I, they'll get it back. Yeah, they'll get it back. Um, and I will add to that, you know, something you are particularly adept at, uh, which I had heard first from Joss Whedon, which is giving them what they want in a way they don't expect. Yeah. Right? Something that's satisfying, but not necessarily what they want. Or discovering what you want was was not as good as you thought it was going to be. The, yeah, that sometimes absolutely. sometimes the characters finally get what they want, and it's 
poison. Yeah. And that can be very that can be very fun to play. Well, that's with. dropping the bear. Yeah, that's dropping the bear. <laughs> exactly. Um, we will end as we always do by asking you what you are reading these days. What are you watching on television? What movies are you enjoying? What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your loved ones or yourself? Well, Black Mirror is great, and I'm just right up on that show like a pig in the trough. <laughs> That's which is a terrible reference. <laughs> <laughs> no, all things um, considered. Um, uh, Black Mirror. I've been watching. Right. Uh, I've been watching Daredevil. Um, and mm-hmm. I think Daredevil is 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 great. And I keep I keep waiting for the magic to go away. I mean, I keep <laughs> waiting for us to get to a point where we've hit peak superhero and we can't take any more superhero. But you know, if the stories, I mean, there were a lot of westerns in the fifties. Mm-hmm. You know, we can as long if the energy is there and there's great acting and great stories, a genre can can you know really be dominant for a long period of time. So Daredevil, um, and I love the Americans, and I'm I'm gonna you know. Um, I'm going to risk outrage and say I think maybe The Americans is as good as Breaking Bad. You're not the first. It's I've definitely so it it's it's so wonderful. Such an amazing show. You know, in a, in a we're in a time where it's an embarrassment of riches. You know, there's so much great TV out there, but even with all the great TV out there, The Americans is a whole nother step beyond what a lot of other TV shows are doing. So so that's terrific. Are there uh, horror or science fiction things out there, whether it's books or films or TV, that you are particularly enjoying? People who are doing it well, you think? Um, people who are doing it well, people who are great in science fiction fantasy. I was ribbing John Scalzi at the beginning of this, and I think John Scalzi is is um, the first writer in a long time to do science fiction that's that's for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. You know, science fiction, science fiction, which is just fun. You know, just really, really. F- really fun and accessible um and not wonky and sort of tiresome and you know um so i think he's doing i think um john's uh john is great um you know we've talked about brian k vaughn i just i read everything i just inhale everything brian k vaughn does i I love i love bkv um same with same with matt fraction and ed brubaker i mean you see i haven't developed any it's still comic books it's like it was it was neil and it was alan moore and you know chris claremont when i was 14 and now i'm 43 and it's like most of the people i'm really high on are still comic book writers um i don't read in terms of prose fiction i don't read that much in genre because i'm always afraid i'll read someone who who's did something I wanted to do and they did it awesome and now I can't do it anymore. Sure. Um, so I'm a, I really like Lauren Bucus though. Um, I think I think Lauren who wrote The Shining Girls, The Shining Girls oh, is right. a terrific supernatural thriller that everyone should read. I love Nick Harkaway. Mm-hmm. I thought Tiger Man. Tiger Man was a great superhero story. Gone Away World is a great science fiction story. Directing, I think Duncan Jones has done really terrific stuff. Um, and I seem to be the only person who thinks that Warcraft looks pretty awesome. I mean everyone else is like, oh, Oh, the orcs look stupid CGI or whatever like that. I don't know. It has the guy from Vikings in it. He's badass, you know, and I don't know. I kind of like the way Warcraft looks, but I don't know. What I, know. <laughs> well, I all, all but guarantee, answers. I all but guarantee it will blow the Hobbit movies out of the water. <laughs> I know that's kind of saying. I know that's not, I know that's kind of, kind of setting a little bit of a low bar. Uh, please give a round of applause to Joe Hill, you guys. Hey guys, thank you. Thank Thanks you so much. To everyone here at Brookline Booksmith, this has been a pleasure. Thanks to 826 Boston, and thank Thanks to all of you for coming out. Am I, I'm gonna sit up. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 